Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Oklahoma last week became the first state to ban almost all abortions from the moment of conception. And at least 20 more states are poised to outlaw or restrict abortion if, as expected, the Supreme Court overrules Roe v. Wade this month. How do we get to this point? That's the question legal historian Mary Ziegler answers in her new book, Dollars for Life, The Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment, all about the ways extreme anti-abortion groups joined forces with, and ultimately co-opted, the GOP. That's next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In less than a month, the U.S. Supreme Court is widely expected to take away the constitutional right to end a pregnancy, and nearly half of all U.S. states are ready to enact bans or even criminalize abortions once that happens, states that are all controlled by Republicans. There was a time, not that long ago, when abortion was less polarizing and the anti-abortion movement was not so aligned with the GOP. UC Davis law professor Mary Ziegler looks at how they joined forces and how we got to a Supreme Court ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. Her book is Dollars for Life, The Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Professor Ziegler, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I want to start with the story you tell in the book of an effort in the mid-60s to strengthen abortion access and decriminalize it. It was signed onto by Republican governors in Colorado, Delaware, New Mexico, I think, and by Ronald Reagan, then California governor, and Spiro Agnew, Richard Nixon's future VP. Can you tell our listeners about that time and what was going on? Yeah, this was a time when I think people thought compromise on abortion of some sort was possible. And the kind of major or most attractive compromise was one developed by the American Law Institute, which is a group of sort of legal experts, judges, and so on, that would allow abortion in what anti-abortion forces often call the hard cases. So rape, incest, health, and so on. And this was seen as an attractive solution by both Democrats and Republicans, if not by people who supported abortion rights or people who opposed abortion rights. Um, So I I think it, it feels very foreign, but that was a very real possibility not so long ago. Yeah, sadly, it feels very foreign. Where was the country or public sentiment on abortion at this time? It was evolving. Um, I think there, the public opinion on abortion in some ways has not changed that significantly since the 60s or 70s in the sense that people have been supportive of restrictions on abortion, but also strongly opposed to criminalizing abortion and have been much more 
opposed to um, restrictions on abortion early in pregnancy rather than later. The one thing that would be striking to someone uh, looking back at that time was that Republicans were often more likely or equally likely to support legalizing abortion than Democrats were because abortion had not become a partisan issue in any kind of meaningful, predictable way. Yeah. Can you talk about how the Catholic Church in 67 turned to a left-leaning priest to form the anti-abortion Right to Life Committee? Absolutely. Yeah. So at the time, the anti-abortion movement had been a primarily Catholic concern, and this had been a problem for the anti-abortion movement in a few ways. Um, first, the movement wanted to be secular and wanted to attract people who weren't Catholic to the cause. Um, and second, the Catholic Church had historically linked abortion to contraception, and that was also damaging the fight on the anti-abortion side. So the, the Catholic Church tapped James McHugh, who was a left-leaning, quite young priest, to create a secular uh, right to life committee. And McHugh is known for having, you know, relatively left leaning positions on a variety of issues, including uh, even sex education. So the early face of the anti-abortion movement was not one we would find familiar either. What convinced him, though, to basically, I mean, I guess his religious views to some extent, but it also sounds like he he got quite into it and convinced his colleagues as well to to really form this National Right to Life Committee and, and really fight the American Law Institute. Absolutely. Yeah. There, and he, he tapped into, I think, existing networks in a variety of states. Some of those were led by Protestants. Some of them led, were led by Catholics. And so the movement was very um, diverse in, in political ways. And there were some cohesive themes, right? The movement was predominantly white predominantly middle class, uh, quite socially conservative in most ways. But there were some people that McHugh was working with who, for example, supported stronger protections against sex discrimination or pregnancy discrimination, better access to birth control or a better social safety net for the poor. And then there were people who were opposed to all of those things as well, right, who were even opposed to civil rights legislation. So his general thought was, you know, let's just get everyone who agrees with us on this one issue, regardless of where they stand on the ideological spectrum, uh, to try to fight the American Law Institute. How, how hard was it to get an abortion at that time? It was quite hard. Um, I mean, there were, of course, illegal abortions um, that were available um, in in the United States and, of course, outside of the United States. People with resources would sometimes travel uh, abroad uh, to places like Sweden or England, people would drive to Mexico. Um, and there were people who, of course, would travel within the United States to the handful of places like New York and Hawaii and eventually California that had liberalized their rules. But it was difficult if for someone without those resources to access illegal abortion, which was why the rates of illegal abortion uh, remained much higher, for example, in communities of color before Roe than in the white community. And um, also, even though maternal mortality and morbidity related to abortion had been declining for some time, uh, those rates remained higher in communities of color than they did in the white community in the years immediately before Roe. Can you remind us what the conditions were like specifically in California? The, the description of how California granted like fewer than 500 requests and only 11 to women out of state was, was striking. Yeah, so California was one of the first states to um, to reform its abortion laws, but that didn't immediately mean meaningful access. And that changed gradually over time because the California Supreme Court got involved. So by 
1973, the picture had changed, but it really took more than just the American Law Institute bill to get there because the American Law Institute erected all kinds of hurdles for people seeking abortion. So after it passed, as you mentioned, there were only a handful of people from the state able to get abortions and even fewer from out of state, which was in part why you saw this turn to the courts, both the California Supreme Court and the federal courts, because people who supported abortion rights said essentially nothing in the real world has changed, right? The people who were unable to get abortions before still are really unable to get abortions. The price of an abortion is still exorbitant. More needs to be done. And the court's response, if you had to sort of summarize around that time, was what? Well, the, the California Supreme Court was actually one of the sort of first to recognize or to hold that a constitutional privacy interest such that the, the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court had already recognized should extend to a decision to have an abortion. And then, of course, in 1973, several years after the California Supreme Court had acted, the U.S. Supreme Court reached the same decision. But that wouldn't have seemed inevitable at the time. There were federal courts and state courts rejecting that argument and federal and state courts embracing it. So I think Roe v. Wade came as a, a pretty big shock <laughs> to many in the anti-abortion movement. This was not something everyone had seen coming. Yeah. As we are going over, there's people who are for, there are people who are against it, but the visceral nature of the division wasn't felt around that time. We're talking with UC Davis law professor Mary Ziegler about how the anti-abortion movement ultimately worked with the GOP to create a national agenda around banning abortions. Part of her new book, Dollars for Life, the anti-abortion movement and the fall of the Republican establishment. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation if, if you have any reflections on this. I don't know if you remember this time or just have questions for Mary Ziegler about it. Also, uh, why you think abortion has become so politically divisive. You can email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. So let's start to unpack when and how abortion became such a partisan issue in the U.S., we see glimpses of this with Richard Nixon, I think. Can you tell us about that? Well, so Richard Nixon was one of the first to see abortion as potentially a good thing for partisan politics from his standpoint. Before then, there had been a real effort to avoid the abortion issue because it divided both parties. There were, I think, predominantly uh, Catholic politicians in both parties who were opposed to abortion, other politicians who were in favor of it. And so it seemed to many politicians to be a lose-lose, essentially raising an issue that people didn't like to talk about. But Nixon saw that there was, were cohorts of voters, um, some white evangelicals and Catholics in particular, who were opposed to abortion, but who might otherwise vote for Democrats, but primarily because that we would think of these people probably as union Democrats who, for economic reasons, would be attracted to the Democratic platform, but were deeply socially conservative in a variety of ways. So Nixon in 72 famously accused um, his opponent, George McGovern, of being for the three A's, which he, he described as being, you know, amnesty for grass dodgers in the Vietnam War, acid as in, you know, dropping LSD <laughs> and abortion, um, which wasn't even really true. I mean, McGovern was hardly an abortion rights supporter. Um, his running mate was actually opposed to illegal abortion altogether. But what was important about what Nixon was doing was that he saw that Republicans could profit politically, potentially from using the abortion issue rather than running away from it. And then... What did Ronald Reagan's campaign for president do? 
Well, Reagan really picked up this thread that had kind of gone away after the Watergate scandal. Um, other Republicans had not really wanted to imitate Nixon's strategy in any meaningful way. You saw politicians in both parties trying to stake out middle ground or simply just not talk about the abortion issue at all. And Reagan made it a centerpiece of his campaign. And that wasn't a surprise because at the time, uh, white evangelical Protestants who had never really voted for one party or another were moving to the Sun Belt, so sort of the Southwest and the South East, uh, were potentially to Reagan looking like a new voting block and were expressing all kinds of anxieties about the way that gender and sexuality in the United States seemed to them to be changing. Um, this was the start of a, a, an LGBTIQ movement, the start of a women's movement, the spread of no-fault divorce. And so Roe for Reagan became a way of kind of coalescing these anxieties, not because people cared more about abortion, although they certainly were upset about legal abortion as well, but because it was something you could do something about. Right. You couldn't eliminate an LGBTIQ movement simply by electing Ronald Reagan or eliminate the women's movement. But you could potentially pass a constitutional amendment banning abortion and you could potentially change the U.S. Supreme Court. And that was a kind of fateful decision that Reagan made in emphasizing that issue. Hmm. We're talking with UC Davis law professor Mary Ziegler about how we've gotten to this point in the anti-abortion movement aligning with the GOP and just how divisive and polarizing this issue has become in the U.S. And we'll have more with Professor Ziegler after the break. You, our listeners, can join with your questions or thoughts. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram are the ways to reach us on social. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can call us, 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about Monday, the biggest races of the June primary election, mayoral primaries in Los Angeles and San Jose, a contentious race for Ellie Sheriff. Voters will also decide the political fate of San Francisco's district attorney. You can always tell us ahead of Monday who you're voting for and why. You can email forum at kqbd.org. Today, we're talking about how the anti-abortion movement became synonymous with the Republican Party. And my guest is UC Davis law professor Mary Ziegler, whose forthcoming book is Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. And you can join our conversation. I'm curious, listeners, how you feel 
about abortion as a political issue? Have you switched parties over abortion? Perhaps you're a Republican who favors abortion rights or a Democrat who's opposed to abortion. Do you feel like what Ziegler is saying about the way that it was handled or viewed in this country in the past relates more to your position? Again, you can join the conversation by emailing forum at kqed.org or by giving us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So just before the break, Mary Ziegler, you were talking about how Reagan saw an opportunity with white evangelical Protestants, for example. But how did their influence grow? How did they gain stature in the party? Well, it took it took a long time. I mean, I think one of the things that was clear to me was that uh, the conservative legal movement. So if you think, for example, um, of the Federalist Society, which has helped to kind of handpick judges that Republicans nominate, the Federalist Society initially shunned the anti-abortion movement. And the Republican Party initially, I think, sort of treated the anti-abortion movement as a junior partner. So the idea was the Republican Party would certainly say the right things, write the right things in its platform as far as the anti-abortion movement was concerned but then not necessarily do anything in office. And so the anti-abortion movement over time recognized that it was not enough to simply align with the Republican Party, that more needed to be done to change the Republican Party, and in particular to have more influence over who was selected for the Supreme Court. And this really came home to them the last time the Supreme Court seemed ready to overturn Roe v. Wade in 1992. There was a conservative supermajority then as now, and yet the court at the last moment saved the idea that there was a right to choose abortion. And that moment really sent the anti-abortion leaders into a fight to change how campaign spending works, change how the Republican Party works, and in some ways change how democracy works to get to a point where you would have a Supreme Court actually willing to pull the trigger and eliminate Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about what happened at that time, who was on the court, how it didn't basically meet the goals of the anti-abortion movement? Sure. So there were six conservative justices on the court. Some of them, given lifetime appointments, are still there. So Clarence Thomas was on the court at the time. Um, There were uh, so among those conservatives, though, there were three, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy and David Souter, who were also widely expected to vote to to reverse Roe, um, so much so that lawyers on both sides had committed um, resources already to what a post-Roe America would look like, right? The thought on the pro-choice side was to lose really spectacularly to maximize the chances of a political backlash in the 1992 presidential and congressional elections. But O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter at the 11th hour instead wrote a joint opinion, which is unusual, all three of them wrote it, essentially saying that the essential holding of Roe v. Wade, that there was a right to abortion until viability would be preserved, um, even though the court at the time also weakened protections for abortion rights and made it easier for states to regulate. And this came as, I think, a devastating blow at the time to many anti-abortion organizations that lost millions of dollars in donor support, had to lay off staff, and really had to go back to the drawing board because the promise they had made to their supporters for decades had been if you get enough Republicans in office, you will get enough judges on the Supreme Court and the overruling of Roe v. Wade will become inevitable. And that, of course, in 1992 turned out not to be true. And the movement had to figure out other ways to change the country uh, to get closer to what they wanted. We have calls and comments coming in. Let me take a moment here to take a few. Rory in Mill Valley. Hi, Rory. Hello. 
Um, I wanted to ask what you, if you knew any more about um, Ronald Reagan and the Republican Party really taking on the abortion issue. I recently saw an interview with a man named Frank Schaefer, who mm-hmm. was a militant anti-abortion activist in the 1970s. And he made a lot of extremist anti-abortion films with uh, Dr. Everett Koop, who later became Surgeon General. And according to him, um, a lot of Christian evangelicals were pro-choice at the time, and he was trying to mainstream the movement, and he hooked up with a man named Jerry Falwell, who mm-hmm. had been raising a lot of money on um, anti-segregationists, um, on apply- basically appealing to uh, segregationist fear of racial integration. He was losing that battle. He was losing money, and he, according to Frank Schaefer, he saw the, the anti-abortion movement as a new way to gin up people's emotions and get money. He then hooked up Frank Schaefer with the Reagan people, who they saw as a way to train single-issue voters so that they could have a consistent base. And according to him, that's how evangelicals took on um, um, the anti-abortion fervor, which was not really the case with evangelicals in the 1970s. Mm. Rory, thanks. Yeah, Mary Ziegler? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so it's true that, um, I mean, I think there there's some a lot of truth in that in the sense that the, the sort of official organs of white evangelical Protestantism were not, um, they weren't really pro-choice, I would say. It was more sort of in the middle, the idea being that, you know, they would say, okay, okay, maybe it's all right to have an abortion in cases of rape or incest, but we're also opposed to what they would call abortion on demand, a truly pro-life or anti-abortion position wasn't staked out until 1980 by the Southern Baptist Convention. But I think what Falwell and Reagan and Schaefer were tapping into was, one, that there was a, had been an unwillingness to work with Catholics and a kind of strong anti-Catholic sentiment among white evangelicals, including Falwell, that needed to be overcome. There needed to be enough of a kind of pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And two, I think that abortion could be packaged as an issue like LGBTIQ rights, like the women's movement, like no-fault divorce, that that evangelicals already were uncomfortable with, that there was this sort of range of issues related not just to race, but to sex and sexuality that you could link abortion to. And so I, I think it wasn't as if evangelicals were entirely comfortable with issues around abortion until Falwell and Reagan came along. They saw a possibility and then they developed it politically. So I, th- I think it was a combination of seeing potential that was already there and then exploiting it. We we talked about how the anti-abortion movement was angered by the Supreme Court not taking this opportunity to overturn Roe in the early 90s. But at the same time, can you just back up slightly? The idea of really focusing on the courts wasn't necessarily mainstream at the time. How did they even get to the point where that would be their big focus, that that would galvanize people? How did they realize well, that? that? Yeah, that wasn't inevitable either. So, I mean, I think one thing that people may not realize is that then as now, the anti-abortion movement's goal is a nationwide ban on abortion, ideally um, a constitutional nationwide ban. So either a Supreme Court decision declaring abortion to be unconstitutional or an amendment to the U.S. Constitution prohibiting abortion. So after Roe, the constitutional amendment road was the one the movement had taken. Um, and the alignment with our GOP was designed to get a constitutional ban through Congress. Uh, when that changed was because, as many listeners know, it's not very easy to amend the U.S. Constitution. 
And so then you, there had to be a plan B and plan B occurred to the movement in 1983 when the Supreme Court struck down an Akron anti-abortion ordinance. And Sandra Day O'Connor, who the anti-abortion movement had really hated until that point, uh, wrote a dissent saying that Roe v. Wade was unworkable. And anti-abortion lawyers in a flurry of correspondence wrote to one another saying, this is something we can work with. Maybe we can't get a constitutional abortion ban, but if we pick the right justices, we can at least get the overruling of Roe and maybe even a constitutional decision going much further in the direction we want. And the movement recognized, I think as well, that it was not simply enough to create a kind of farm team of conservative talent as the Federalist Society was beginning to do. More needed to be done to actually con convince ordinary conservative voters to care about the courts, which was not natural, right? I mean, ordinary voters know very little about the Supreme Court, don't care about really esoteric legal things. But the anti-abortion movement set about making the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade's fate in the hands of the Supreme Court a major election issue for conservative voters in the decades to come. And then you touched on this, but let's follow the other thread that you mentioned, which is how campaign finance figures so heavily into the anti-abortion movement. How? Yeah, it was. So it came after the court refused to reverse Roe. And one of the ways that anti-abortion leaders thought to maybe get beyond this roadblock was money. Um, more money would mean, they believed, more Republicans in office, which would increase the odds of a better, from their standpoint, Supreme Court. More campaign spending, they also believed, would mean that anti-abortion groups could gain more purchase in the Republican Party, both by spending more on the candidates they liked, but also by proving their worth to a Republican Party that was still not convinced that most Americans opposed abortion or that opposing abortion was a winning election, winning issue on election day. So anti-abortion groups um, became deeply involved in trying to fight campaign finance reform at the state and national level. The National Right to Life Committee, which is the largest national anti-abortion group for years, has in its rankings of which politicians are pro-life, included their positions on campaign finance reform in the calculation. And the lawyers who've led many of the major cases that have resulted in our current campaign finance landscape were lawyers from the anti-abortion movement, including Jim Bopp, who is the uh, general counsel for the National Right to Life Committee. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about Bob. I, I know it's a long story in terms of, um, you know, getting getting campaigns finance, campaign finance restrictions lifted. But but talk about how he links up the goals of the anti-abortion movement with campaign finance restrictions being lifted. Well, Bob was, is a fascinating uh, person. He's one of the most strategic thinkers I've talked to. Um, someone, I think, who genuinely loves politics because of the game, right? The sort of the satisfaction of outthinking your opponent. And campaign finance always struck him as intrinsic. So I think he he believes sincerely that limits on campaign spending are the same as limits on speech. And he believed that limits on campaign spending always hurt people like him. They would benefit um, mainstream media, which he thought was generally pro-choice and progressive. They would benefit people who had money at the expense of grassroots conservatives who were often more populist. And he believed that he was smart enough 
with his colleagues to teach Republicans how to win the, the money game, right? Not only to litigate these cases, but to find new ways to spend, to find new loopholes in the existing rules, whether that was super PACs or nonprofits. And so he pops up over and over again in stories about campaign finance. And he's unusual, too, in the sense of most people in the anti-abortion movement, abortion for them is the human rights cause of this century. And that's certainly true for Bob. But Bob's sort of first political memory is memories involve the Republican Party. They don't involve abortion. So this is someone who is deeply involved and deeply invested in changing what the Republican Party means. Uh, and so it was no accident that he was at the forefront of efforts, not just to change the way we think of campaign finance or the First Amendment, but to change what the GOP is. And he certainly had powerful individuals and groups who were also interested in lifting campaign restrictions as well. Can you talk a little bit about about them and then ultimately just how Citizens United ends up being such a watershed moment, right? And for for BOP in a big way. Yeah. So, I mean, the campaign, the coalition against campaign finance reform has always been a complicated one. And in some ways, the anti-abortion movement was sort of late to the party. So, it was a coalition of, of both right and left. There were civil libertarians. Um, the, the American Civil Liberties Union um, from the beginning was opposed to limits on campaign spending. Uh, there were, of course, um, sort of small government conservatives like folks at the American Enterprise Institute. Um, over time, that, that grew to include business conservatives, places like leaders of groups like the Chamber of Commerce, uh, and it grew to include Republican leaders because over time, Republicans became convinced that for the most part, they were better at raising and spending money than Democrats um, and that generally uh, limits on campaign finance would hurt them, although they had been opportunistic before and supporting some. So this was a much bigger movement than just the anti-abortion movement. But the anti-abortion movement, I think, was instrumental in it insofar as social conservatives had not really cared about campaign finance issues. And it's easy to understand why. Why would they, right? They don't necessarily have more money. They won't necessarily profit. And this was why within the anti-abortion movement, there were some leaders who didn't understand what Bob was doing and didn't really care about campaign finance. But Bob did a lot of work with groups like the Christian Coalition and others to say, essentially, we will never get what we want in terms of changing America, unless the campaign finance rules change in our direction, and in bringing a, you know a, a substantial ch chunk of social conservatives on board um, with this agenda, and Citizens United um, is an example, I think, of how both anti-abortion forces were key in the sense of beginning this case, but also managed to capitalize on opportunities others had seen. So Bob had hoped Citizens United would be a dark money case that it would be an opportunity for social conservatives to say to donors in blue states, look, you can support a cause that's unpopular in secrecy without potential fallout to your career or your family. And that had been the central question he'd wanted to focus on. That, of course, was not what the Supreme Court wanted to focus on. The court wanted to focus on corporations' ability to spend unlimited amounts of money. But as soon as the decision came down, Bob and others in the anti-abortion movement recognized what it could mean, which was a change in the balance of power and campaign spending. Up until that point, most power in terms of spending had been in the hands of the party leadership, the party establishment. And that had never really suited the anti-abortion movement. The anti-abortion movement wanted outside groups 
like the gun rights lobby, the anti-abortion lobby, to have more pull. And if corporations, including, of course, nonprofit ideological corporations, had this new spending edge, they could potentially change or maybe even fatally weaken the party establishment. And therein lies the reason why the subtitle to your book is The Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Talk about that. We're coming up on a break, but once once the establishment lost its stranglehold on funding, essentially you're saying that's what gave rise to more extreme candidates and fringe candidates as well, but also people who would really take the more extreme view about abortion, anti-abortion um, restrictions. Yeah, there were lots of things, of course, that led to the demise of the establishment, you know, the rise of Christian nationalism, um, the rise of conservative media, just the polarization of the American electorate. But money played a role, too. And it's interesting to look back and think of populist candidates like Pat Buchanan, who made a real run in 1996 and had a big fan base like Donald Trump. But when it came to money, the GOP establishment just crushed him financially. And when the same kind of thing happened in 2016, when Donald Trump ran, the GOP establishment couldn't do that anymore because there were too many sources of outside spending available to keep Trump afloat. Even if he received less money than his primary challengers, he had enough to keep it going. He, there was not an overwhelming financial advantage the party could muster. And that opened the door to populist candidates like Trump in the years to come. We're talking with Mary Ziegler, UC Davis law professor, about the anti-abortion movement and how it worked with the GOP and how it created a national agenda around banning abortions. And we'll have more with you, our listeners, after the break. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with UC Davis law professor Mary Ziegler about her new book, Dollars for Life, The Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. It comes out on June 21st. What are your questions for Mary Ziegler? Why do you think or how do you think abortion became so politically divisive? You can email your thoughts to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can call us 866-733-6786. And this listener writes, I have a family member who used to be a moderate pro-choice Republican. She even once marched for abortion rights. But she now gets all her news from Fox and extreme right-wing media. 
and has bought into the entire Republican platform, even their anti-abortion positions. You touched on this before the break about the role of of right-wing media, but do you want to say more about how it amplified these divisions? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the things that was was clear with conservative media, as you mentioned, was that it's led to people kind of living in entirely different factual universes. So it's not just the case that they have different moral positions on abortion or different faith-based positions on abortion. They believe fundamentally different things about what abortion is, what it does to communities, what it does to people who have abortions and pregnant people, what it means to the Republican or Democratic parties. And so that made it much harder for the Republican establishment to compete as well, because the Republican establishment for years had had better relationships with the legacy media. Um, By contrast, uh, conservative media outlets like Fox have always given more of a platform to purist candidates who are the most conservative, the most extreme, the most in keeping with the position taken by the outlet. And that's led to a kind of feedback loop where voters reward politicians for those positions. Politicians then take more positions. Media outlets report on those positions. And that reinforces polarization of the electorate. Let me go to caller Steve in Southern California. Hi, Steve. Hi. What's on your mind? Can you hear me okay? I can. Okay. So you you wanted me to just get my thoughts? Uh, Yeah, go right ahead. Thanks for waiting. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Well, the question was asked on the air, how did the issue become so polarizing? And what I see is that one of the biggest causes of extremists on the pro-abortion side were unwilling to accept any kind of limitation up to and including partial birth abortion, which is a real problem for a lot of people. Is that accurate, Mary Ziegler? Um, Yeah, I think there's certainly, and I mean, the book talks about this, there was polarization um, on both sides. So the caller is right, for example, if you're looking at you know, did the Democratic Party move to the left on abortion? Absolutely, right? So, for example, the Hyde Amendment, right, which involves Medicaid access for low-income patients seeking abortions, that had been something on which politicians like Joe Biden for most of his career had been willing to compromise. And um, when Congress introduced, uh, the caller mentioned, the partial birth abortion ban, which is a ban on a specific procedure, dilation, and extraction, Democrats um, opposed it. I think if we're thinking about polarization, it's definitely something that everyone has been a part of. I think the polarization in some ways, especially when you're thinking about how the Supreme Court has been transformed, is asymmetric, um, in part because conservatives have cared more about the courts and have been far better, in my opinion, at transforming the courts. So the caller is right to say that this is not simply something that happened on the Republican side. But it, I think it's also fair to say that the kind of polarization the, bo- the book focuses on is, is different, um, largely because conservatives were so effective in changing campaign finance rules and in transforming the Supreme Court. And Steve, I think I cut you off there by accident. Finish your thought. Was there more uh, you wanted to say? I, I guess the only other thing I wanted to add is that if, if you can change the discussion from being something that people on each side think is a, a firmly held moral right into something about if it's a number where you're going to agree on how many weeks you can go and, and get an abortion, it would be a lot easier for people to compromise. You know, when I, one of the things that Steve was mentioning that I'm also, is reminding me of what the previous commenter wrote in. You, you talk about how a lot of people 
blame religion, right, mm-hmm. as part of the reason that this has become so contentious or so intense. But, you know, we had that commenter earlier talking about how, uh, you know, a family member they knew has basically bought into the whole of the Republican Party platform. It feels like, and I think you talk about this quite a bit, that there is this shift in terms of, or this contribution <laughs> that party that partisanship has made to all of this that often uh, gets gets conflated with religiosity. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's that's noteworthy is that the United States has become a more secular country at the very moment that the United States is going to lose abortion rights, and at the very moment that state abortion policies, really blue and red, are becoming further apart. And so if religion is the explanation, that's weird, right? That doesn't seem right. And that's true even with respect to white evangelical Protestants, which is a shrinking group, much as most other faith communities are shrinking. So partisanship has definitely played a part. And I think one of the things that was clear to me in the book is that, um, you know, the last caller, Steve, mentioned, you know, how might we de-escalate conflict about this? It's quite clear that both leaders of, of the Republican Party in the book and some were interested in polarizing the issue, like wanted to polarize the issue, that there would maybe be issues on which Americans could agree, but that if that was not something that would help particular politicians, that was not what was put at the top of the agenda. So I think partisanship has had a, a negative and very powerful effect in, in terms of making it harder to talk about things that would actually help pregnant people as opposed to fighting um, for the sake of getting out votes and getting dollars in pockets. Well, the sister writes, you say that the anti-abortion movement has played a role in the fall of the GOP, but has it been a fall or just a shift to the right? I guess I understand this point because mm-hmm. because it does feel like Republicans are really powerful. Yeah, <laughs> Still. Well, the, the title of the book is Fall of the Republican Establishment, right? So I'm not trying to say fall of the Republican Party. And, and then the question becomes, is it the, the transformation of the establishment, right? Because you could have a new establishment. I mean, arguably now the establishment is Donald Trump and people who agree right. with Donald Trump. Um, I think what I meant by that is that for decades, even longer than that, there had been a kind of group of Republican Party leaders, you know, the committee men, people who came to the convention every year, the big dollar donors, whose priority had been electability, right, whose priority had been winning. So if a candidate said something that was too extreme and that was going to make it less likely that person was going to win, then that person should be out of the race, right? That isn't the Republican Party we have anymore necessarily, right? I mean, sometimes you see candidates emerging out of races who are there because of their ideological purity, not because of their electability. And so I think there was a shift in recent years away from that traditional leadership. And maybe that's the new establishment, but it's an establishment that's unfamiliar in really fundamental ways. Hmm. Well, Jesse writes, how are states' rights different from individual rights under the Constitution? It seems that a state has the right to dictate anything pertaining to property and land and anything within it. But how does a state have the right to dictate a person's rights? Well, generally what the Supreme Court is probably going to tell us soon is that unless your state or federal constitution recognizes a right to do something, then states can tell you what to do as long as their laws don't violate some other constitutional interest and have some kind of rational basis. And if the Supreme Court says that there is no right to abortion, which is what we're you know almost certainly expecting, 
that would allow states to say, as long as we have a reasonable basis for acting, we can criminalize abortion, as states once did. Uh, and that, that's what we're expecting the Supreme Court to sign off on, if not to go further than that, actually, in the direction of saying that uh, abortion itself is maybe constitutionally questionable. Well, let me go to caller Christopher in San Rafael. Hi, Christopher. Hi. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I just wanted to make a comment, and that is that, you know, I have family that's both evangelical and that is non-religious. And, I mean, both of them have problems with abortion. I mean, me, myself, I think that a woman has the right to the autonomy of their body. But, I mean, you, I don't think that the correlation, you know, that evangelicals are all for, you know, abortion is not exactly um, a, a, a true statement. Because, like I said, I have family that is not evangelical that is um, pro-abortion as well. Right. Well, tell us, Mary, where are we now? I, you've talked about the consistency with which basically people's support for abortion with some restrictions has been for for many decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's still where we are, right? So about 20% of Americans, um, based on polling, seem to want abortion to be illegal under all or most circumstances. Um, you know, maybe about a third of Americans think there should be no restrictions on abortion. And then there's a large group in the middle that would be hard to describe politically that think abortion should be legal sometimes, but restricted, maybe illegal other times, that it was sort of in a large gray area. And those people, I think it's fair to say that white evangelicals are more likely to oppose abortion than people in other faith communities. Um, that's also true, I think, with respect to evangelicals of color, but it's not, no faith community is homogenous on this, right? So once you get into what do most Americans think about abortion, it's incredibly complex, much sure. more complex than what the parties are offering. And right. one of the reasons I think our, our politics are so unstable, because in some other parts of the world, like in Ireland, that has some protection for abortion rights, that happened because voters decided directly without politicians as intermediaries. And it would be surprising to me if we ever had any kind of stable politics without voters themselves being the ones deciding versus politicians, because politicians have, as we've seen, have incentives to push things in the other direction. Right. So now we're talking about a point, even though this is generally how the landscape uh, is laid out, we're talking about basically the unprecedented taking away of an established constitutional right for pregnant people uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court later this month. Uh, or at least that's expected to happen. Yeah. We're, we're having laws with no exceptions for rape or incest being passed. Just a few weeks ago, we had Louisiana pushing to have ending a pregnancy viewed as murder. They scrapped it. But still, we are at this point, as you're saying, that isn't reflective necessarily of the nuances of the public, or not even necessarily, that just isn't isn't reflective. And And I think this points to also another major point in your book, which is not just the fall of the Republican establishment, but just the demise of, of democracy. Yeah, I think that one of the things that was disturbing to me in the book was that uh, people who, there were people of good faith who were sometimes saying, well, the rights of the unborn or fetal rights are so important that we're willing to do what it takes to change the Supreme Court. And some, I think, people of good faith are now realizing that what they did or how we got to this moment in terms of changing the court and changing the Republican Party will not just affect abortion. If you're opposed to abortion, it may affect many other things in ways that you're not comfortable with. Right. And so 
um, it's something often you'll see abortion labeled a women's issue. And it, it very much is not right. The reverberations of this will continue um, in the Supreme Court and outside of it, I think, for some time. We're talking about the relationship between the anti-abortion movement, the Republican Party, and its broader impacts with Mary Ziegler, a law professor at UC Davis. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So so let's talk about what, what happens this month, um, the reversal of Roe potentially later this month. You have said that it may seem like the end of a struggle, but the opposite is true for the anti-abortion movement. Can you talk about that a little bit and what you're expecting from? Yeah, well, for the anti-abortion movement, this has been, it's a human rights movement. If you're in the anti-abortion movement, this is about um, the rights of, of life in the womb. And overturning Roe v. Wade does not actually get you there, right? Because most abortions today happen in populous blue or purple states like California, New York, and Florida. Banning abortion on its own in places like Louisiana or Texas will not even change the abortion rate that significantly. So the movement's goal has always been to make abortion illegal and unavailable across the country, not just in states that want to do it. So we've seen some signs that anti-abortion groups are going to go back to the U.S. Supreme Court to ask the court to hold that abortion is unconstitutional. We've seen Republican leaders saying that if they take over Congress and the White House by 2024, 2025, that they will seek federal legislation banning abortion. So on that front alone, this is just the beginning of the struggle. And even when it comes to relationships between the states, we've seen that that's going to be a hot button issue. Some red states are trying to regulate what actors in blue states are doing, whether that's the CEO of a company like Lyft that's going to help employees from red states seek abortions in blue states, or that's a doctor from California performing abortions on an out-of-state patient. And that's going to raise all kinds of questions about what happens when state laws conflict, about who decides, about whether there are constitutional problems when people are disallowed from doing things that are legal in their own states or traveling to other states. So this is only going to get messier and uglier um, once Roe is gone. Yeah, uh, the leaked draft had that point about the unique value of fetal life. Are you watching for that language to be in what comes out later this month? I am. I'm also, of course, watching um, concurring opinions. Um, I would be somewhat surprised if Clarence Thomas, who's arguably the court's most conservative justice, doesn't write a concurring opinion signaling some sympathy for the idea that abortion is unconstitutional. And I think it'll be interesting to see how the other justices, conservative justices, fall on this, too. If there's any sign that some of the conservative justices are trying to close the door on this argument, if others are signaling sympathy for it, um, because I imagine there, there will be a fight on the court's right flank going forward about whether the overruling of Roe is the stopping point for this conservative majority or if it's just the beginning. Well, Thomas writes, while I respect the opinion that to many abortion is wrong, it's not credible to me that the life of the fetus is actually important to far-right conservative strategists. To them, including Mitch McConnell, it's all about having power over others. What are the chances of a constitutional right to life passing or or Congress? I mean, it's been floating the idea of a, nas- of a nationwide abortion ban. Where do you put the chances of that, Mary Ziegler? It's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think that Republicans, so on the one hand, right, Republicans have seen the same polls we've been discussing, and they know that that might not go over well with voters. And Republicans in national office, also in some, particularly in 
contested states have to worry that a vote on a bill like that might actually come back to haunt them in a way that wouldn't be true in politically uncompetitive states like Mississippi. On the other hand, I think the Republican Party's strategy in recent decades has been um, primarily kind of a turnout-based strategy, right, to rally voters who already care deeply about the Republican Party rather than appealing as much to independents or voters in the middle, although that isn't always true, it's often true. And so if that wing of the movement wins out, the argument might be that even if your average median voter doesn't want a national ban, the Republican Party does better by energizing people on the right than by appealing to people in the middle. Mm. So I think it'll depend on which vision of their party's future is compelling when a national ban comes up for discussion. So then what are you hoping people will take away from understanding this history that you've written about, how we got to this point? Well, I think probably two things. For people who uh, support abortion rights, I'm hoping that people see that this is an issue that they should care about, um, in part because it's an issue about voting, it's an issue about democracy, it's an issue about money and politics, that these things are all connected. This is not something that can be kind of siloed and then, you know, essentially offered to pregnant people and said, this is your fight, this is your problem. That's the wrong way to understand this. And I think for people who oppose abortion, it, it's helpful to understand that the fight to end abortion has changed the country in, in ways they may like, but also in other ways they may find more uncomfortable and to think going forward about whether they want the country to function the way it has in recent history. Mary Ziegler's new book is Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. My thanks to Susie Britton for producing today's segment. This Forum Hour is also produced by Caroline Smith and Grace One. Our senior producer is Susan Davis. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Jim Bennett, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Jennifer Eng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Thank you, listeners, for listening to Forum. I hope you have a good weekend. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.